guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Jonah Lupton, the founder and CEO of SoundGuard. SoundGuard manufactures a soundproof paint that is applied in hotels and apartment groups around the nation. Jonah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me more about your background. I know you've been involved in a ton of stuff over the years. Yep. So after college, I actually went to go work for the Wall Street Investment Banks. Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, and then a couple of private trust companies in Boston. Then the great financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009. Didn't seem like there was anywhere to hide. And I just, the anxiety of losing customer money, their, mm. their retirement funds, and just kind of feeling helpless when the market goes haywire was just not something I enjoyed. So I decided in 2010 to get out of the business. I eventually left in 2011 started a couple of software companies. I guess you could say I had my own little startup incubator where I had a couple of developers and designers working for me and we were trying to create the next big idea. And then that went well or somewhat well for a few years. I was living in North Carolina in an apartment building with some noisy neighbors. <laughs> and I approached the landlord and said, Hey, what can you do to help me soundproof these walls so I don't have to get woken up at five in the morning by my neighbors or get stuck <laughs> late at night, listening to my neighbors when they have people over and they come home from the bars drunk. I mean, all, you know, all the stuff that most of us have dealt with at one point or another, living in apartment buildings or even condos. And then he came back eventually and said, listen, it's too much money to rip walls apart. I'm happy to let you out of your lease, but I'm not going to be able to do anything to these walls to help you. And I said, okay, fine. I understand. Went back to my life, went back to my software company. But a few months later, this this problem just, it was annoying me. I felt like there needed to be a solution. Someone had to create something. So I actually moved back to Massachusetts and the idea of a soundproofing paint kind of came into my mind with the help of a couple of friends. We were just kind of brainstorming one day over coffee. And I said, I think I can find someone to help me create this. And I was obviously kind of BSing because I didn't know anybody in the paint industry. So I began networking and eventually I cold called a bunch of different chemists around the country. And one lab in Connecticut, a company called FMI, agreed to help me develop this formulation. And the deal that we struck, which is actually still the deal that is in place today, is help me develop this formulation. And if we take it to market, you guys will be manufacturing the product for us. So that was their incentive was, obviously, if this company gets big and we're making tens of thousands of gallons a month, they're manufacturing the product. We're selling it. So obviously, we're both making money. And it's been, it's been a good relationship. It's been hard launching a new paint company, something in the building material space. It's not easy. I mean, there are not many startups in this space for a reason <laughs> because it's dominated by so many large companies. So there's just not, much, not many startups able to get funding and really create innovative products that serve a particular need that we, you kind of sit in your own niche where you're not getting kind of knocked off by those bigger competitors. So what this product does, and I'll kind of explain it. So sound is 
I'm still learning a lot of this stuff, but sound is basically energy and vibration and intensity. So there are 18 or 19, depending on the testing that you're doing, there's typically 18 or 19 frequencies that any product in acoustics has to essentially test well for. And some products test really well on one end of the frequency spectrum or the other. Our product, because there's not much mass to it, our product is going on the wall at 68 to 78 wet mills, dries down to 30 to 40 dry mills, depending on how much product you want to put on. Standard application is 68 wet mills and 30 dry mills. Now that 30 dry mills, even though that's 10 times thicker than a regular coat of paint, it's still only the thickness of a credit card. And when you're trying to stop sound, in order to stop the lower frequency sound, you really need mass. So there's really, it's almost impossible, it really is impossible for us to stop sound in the lower frequency range with this product. And we knew that going into this. Your heavy bass, your washer and dryer thumping, that sort of stuff, this product is not meant to stop. If that's the problem, you need to add more drywall, you need to add mass-loaded vinyl or green glue or something to get more mass on the wall. But the top half of your frequencies, this product does an amazing job at stopping. So what we're doing for hotels and apartment buildings and condo buildings and even offices is we're spraying this product onto the wall. It looks like paint, smells like paint, and then you would put your top coat over it. But what it's doing is it's reducing the sound transmission that would be coming through that wall from the top half of the frequencies, which is voices, some music, maybe the dog barking, the kid crying, that sort of stuff. That's what this product is meant to stop. Perfect. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned how tough things were, uh, the building materials channel. I I know a lot about that personally. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) give me some examples. Like what's been the toughest? So right off the bat, we, when we had the product, we did all the testing, we essentially verified that it was effective at stopping noise at particular frequencies. It hit my expectations. So we decided to go to market with it. But I mean, I was still just a bootstrapped company. I hadn't raised any outside capital. I basically exhausted all of my personal funds. So I figured the best way to get this product into the market without having to spend a lot of money was to bring on independent sales reps. So essentially manufacturers reps that would be working on a commission-only basis. And the challenge I learned four to five months later, the problem that I was running into is these manufacturers reps, they're out there pitching five, six, seven other products. And our product just requires so much education. And then we have to go out and do mock-ups. And it's a very long sales cycle trying to get into these large renovations and then get approved by the architects and designers and get in front of the spec writers. I mean, all that stuff. It's a tedious, tedious process. And these independent reps were not going to do that work. So then I decided to go out and start raising capital. But unlike traditional software companies, internet companies, consumer companies, where there are thousands of angel investors out there that know the industry, they invest in the industry, they've had successful exits, all of that stuff, venture funds, angel funds. But there's really not much for startups in the building material space. And I mean, I have my thoughts as to why that is. And like I said earlier, part of it is just there's not many of them because the innovation's coming out of the large companies. So that was my challenge was finding investors that knew my industry, that invested in these types of companies and could really add value. 
So I eventually did raise capital, but it wasn't from very strategic angel investors. Some of them are. Some of them are in real estate development. Some of them are in the drywall business, the insulation business. So they do know the industry. They do have customers and contacts that they can introduce us to. But I think the next round of capital we raise will be from very, very strategic investors. I don't know if it'll be the paint companies themselves, but there's other building materials companies out there that have massive distribution networks set up, sales reps on the ground. They could be very valuable investors, and I think they could help us scale much faster. So we go out and raise money. I mean, and we're actually still raising our seed round right now. We've raised 450 so far. We're probably going to raise another five or 600,000 before the end of this year. And then I would say sometime in late 2020, we'll probably go out and raise our next round of capital if we need it. So that was, so that was challenge number one, was really finding the capital to grow this company. Challenge number two, where I would say I, I kind of screwed up as well, was hiring the right people. Now I know exactly what I need in the sales rep. When I first started hiring them nine months ago, I don't think I was 100% sure what I needed them to, I guess what I needed their network to look like. Mm. Now I know that I will not bring anybody on the team that doesn't have sufficient connections to architects, designers, acoustical consultants, developers, hotel groups, etc. I thought I could bring people onto the team that had maybe a few of those connections, but said all the right things in the interview. And I felt like they were going to go out there and bust their asses and hustle, 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 mm -hmm. and that they could really develop those connections. And they start to do that, but it just takes so many months to develop those connections and relationships. And a startup can't afford to pay someone five or $6,000 a month and wait for them to wait six months or nine months for them to develop those relationships. So I think now as we start to hire a new generation of sales reps, I'm only going to be able to bring on the people that have really, really strong networks. Of course, we'll have to pay them more money, but I think we'll see quicker results. Very cool. Now, what about your marketing? I, I see a lot of marketing, social media. You're very savvy there. I mean, what sort of marketing support are you throwing at this? So we've done, I mean, we've tried all the different channels. I think any good startup going into it. Yeah, well, I guess maybe sometimes they know which channels would be the, the most effective, provide the best ROI. I think in our case, we just weren't sure. So we did some SEO. We did some pay-per-click. Facebook, on Google, even on Instagram, obviously creating content for our blog, and then obviously getting into podcast interviews and even some trade shows. So we've tried a lot of different things. I would say the, the pay-per-click for us definitely does not work because traditionally your commercial customer, that's what we're trying to sell to, or even your contractor, they're not on Google looking for solutions. They're going to the experts in their industry and getting their advice. So We've probably spent five or $10,000 on pay-per-click with very, very little results other than getting homeowners coming to us. And for now, we're just not really doing much in the residential space. So I would say the marketing that's been the most successful for us, a little bit of SEO in the blog. We've done a couple trade shows, but they're honestly so expensive to do right. I mean, between getting a booth and sending all your people out there and having all the materials and then paying for the travel and everything else that comes with it, I mean, you can easily spend twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars on a trade show, and that's a lot of money for a startup. I do think that over the next year we'll have opportunities to do more trade shows as we continue to generate revenue. 
So I'm actually looking forward to that because I think they'll be very, very successful for us. But it is a big investment up front. But hands down, the channel that's been the most successful for us, I mean, by far and away, is email marketing. Hmm. Not just on the, the email marketing people that have signed up to our newsletter, but some cold email marketing. And I know some people listening might say that's spam, but we do, we try to abide by all the rules, all the can spam rules. So we provide opt outs, but it's also very, very targeted. I mean, we're not just buying a list of 200,000 people and blasting out some email. We are only going after very specific professions and titles and we customize each email so that it's specific to them and their industry. So we might do a search online using some of our software for vice president of development for hotel groups. Mm-hmm. And maybe it comes back with a thousand names. So we'll write a sequence of three or four emails that are targeted to that specific title in the hotel industry. And then we'll drip on them for a couple of weeks and try to get them to obviously come to our website, download a white paper, set up a, a call with us, something like that. But email marketing, we've absolutely crushed it on. Mm. And I've had a really good guy on my team doing it for me. There's obviously a lot of software out there to help you do email. But just he's a very... I call him a, a kind of a growth hacker, growth marketer, because he knows how to really scrape the internet and get <laughs> the email addresses for the people that we want to try to talk to. Awesome. It's, it's good to have someone like that on your team. Now, you, you mentioned hotels and apartment groups as your focus. I mean, how did you get to that focus? I mean, obviously, you're living in a building, but did you look at other markets as well? Yeah. So the, the markets that we're really focused on, as I mentioned earlier, hotels, apartments, condos, and offices. There's obviously other subgroups of that where you could get into, obviously, medical offices. You could get into schools and universities and dorms, which could be on-campus housing or off-campus housing. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly other markets. I mean, we've, we've been talked to the cruise ship companies. Carnival and Royal Caribbean have had, have had some interest. So there's, all, there's so many opportunities out there, even obviously residential homes, single-family homes, stuff like that. But we really felt like the four that we wanted to focus on were going to be hotels, apartments, condos, and offices. Now, offices are tricky because you have drop ceilings in a lot of them, which mm-hmm. present another set of problems that our product can't necessarily help with. So we're still not even sure if offices is really going to be that big of a market as long as they're dealing with the, the drop ceilings, which means you have a non-demising wall. Condos are tricky because if you don't get into the specs up front, then you have to wait for these condos to be sold off to individual owners. And now you're dealing with all these individual owners, which presents another set of problems. So hotels and apartments were really going to be the primary focus for us. Obviously, they're both owned in most cases by large groups that own multiple properties across multiple states. So we felt like you do a job for one property group in one state and they're happy with the results. There's obviously other opportunities inside of their portfolio, whether it's the big names like Avalon and Equity Residential or, I mean, the the JLLs and the CBREs and those types of companies. So some of these groups now own billions of square feet of hospitality, multifamily, commercial office, etc. Now, apartments for us, let's take ABC Apartment Group and say they own a property in Washington, D.C. and it's 300 units and it's 95% occupied 
And every month they have 10 people leave. And then four days later, they have 10 people move into those units. Mm -hmm. That would be the opportunity for us to go in and do those 10 units when they're unoccupied and they're essentially doing a turnover for the next people coming in. So we wouldn't, in the apartment industry, unless we're doing it as a new construction spec, those properties are already essentially operating. You're only going to be able to do a certain number of units each month. So maybe it takes two, three, four years to get the entire building done because that's how long it takes for all 300 units to eventually turn over. Hotels, same thing. Obviously, we'd like to get into the specs for the new construction. It's much harder because you got to go through the architect and blah, blah, blah. But we really think that where we're going to kill it on the hotel side is is the renovations. Hmm. So there's 60,000 hotels in the US. We're going after the top, say, 20 to 25%. So that's twelve to 15,000 hotels that we think we have an opportunity to work with over the next decade. On average, they're renovating every seven to 10 years. So if you just divide 15,000 by 10, being very, very conservative, I mean, that means every year there's 1,500 hotels in the US that are in our target market that are renovating. And these renovations can be anywhere from five or 10 million up to 100 million. In some cases, past 100 million if they're big enough. And obviously that means they're going in and they're, they're doing the walls, they're doing the carpet. If it's a bigger renovation, they're putting in new furniture and bedding and light fixtures and all this other stuff. So that's been our focus for the last, say, 12 months is the apartments more on the luxury side in your nicer cities and in your nicer suburbs where there's obviously some, there's pricing power for your class, I don't know if the, I don't know how much their apartments even do class A, B, and C like commercial office does, but let's just say they do. If you have a class C apartment building in the middle of nowhere and they're getting $500 a month for their two bedrooms, they're not going to be spending three bucks a square foot to put our product on the walls. But if you have a really nice property owned by Avalon or Equity Residential or one of these other companies in a top, top 15, top 20 market where they're getting 2500 to 3000 a month for a one bedroom there they can rationalize spending 3 bucks a square foot to put our paint on the walls and obviously hotels that's a no brainer doing these renovations when they're already painting every single wall in there if they have an existing noise problem we can obviously identify that online with tools like Yelp and TripAdvisor so we you know out of those 1500 hotels that are being renovated every year we really know which ones need our products so we can focus on them very nice. One thing I noticed as you were explaining that whole thing, and, and not, not everyone goes to, to this level, is that the detail in which you understand your market from, from statistics and sort of specific details, what's that process look like for you? Because not everyone goes to, to that much detail when you're starting out. No, I mean, and it's taken us a while to get there and learn these markets and really get to know the customer and what's their needs and what sort of budget can they absorb? Because paint is cheap. I mean, paint is not one of the, the premium products or line items that is typically part of a, a, a spec or a renovation or whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call it. So we have to get these customers to really think differently about paint. Or we don't really want to even be considered a paint. We want to be considered a, a soundproofing solution or an acoustical solution. Mm-hmm. Because if someone tries to compare us against paint, we're clearly going to look much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So that that's the if that's where the conversation's headed, it's very difficult for us. So 
we've had to learn these markets. We've had to become experts in wall construction and soundproofing and acoustics and coatings and all this stuff and really teach the market, teach our customer what this all means and what our product you know, is best used for. I mean, I probably turn down 75% of the projects that come our way hmm. because they're just not right. They're not right for us because they're not, mm-hmm. our product was not created to fix those problems. And hmm. I'll give you an example. I got a call a couple of days ago from a office property, I think just outside of New York City, and they have some very noisy conference rooms. That's what happens when you put a lot of people talking or using the conference systems in a conference room where it's you know essentially a closed off space. And they were looking for something to put on the walls or the ceiling to absorb sound. And even though our product does absorb a little bit of sound when the sound is trying to pass through it, it's not, we're not absorbing enough sound to really cut down on the echo in a room. Mm-hmm. And that's where you need to add acoustic panels to the walls and ceilings, which have a lot more mass to them than our product has. So they're still, and that's why I'm very apprehensive about ever making this, putting this on the shelves at Home Depot and Lowe's mm. or making this a direct to consumer product or where someone could just go to our website, buy some product without talking to anybody, have it shipped to their house and then worry about who's applying it. I mean, there's just, there's too many variables in there that can go wrong. And usually, and that's, <laughs> that's usually a recipe for disaster for a new company that's trying to build a brand and control their reputation. So we have brought on the dealer partners. So we, we are working with PPG and Sherwin-Williams. We're approved by both of them. And what I'm doing with part of my time every week is traveling the country meeting with some of their top sales reps, meeting with their architectural reps or the guys that call in architects and designers and hosting webinars for all their sales teams so that I can educate them that when they're out in the market talking to their customers and contractors, they know how to properly introduce the product so that we don't end up with all these jobs coming to us that we really can't help with and should not get involved with. Mm. So are these Chairman Williams PPG partnership, are they stalking them or are they just sort of... It's sort of a flow through order channel. Yeah, I would say 5% of their stores will probably stock the product. Mm-hmm. That's their bigger commercial stores where they're doing more volume. They have more sales reps connected to those stores. Those are the stores that the biggest contractors are typically coming into. The other 95% of stores will were essentially like a dropship product for mm-hmm. them. So if, if Joe Blow walks into a Sherwin-Williams store in the suburbs of Raleigh and they don't have it stocked and we don't have any product stocked in the Raleigh commercial store, then they'll have to put through a purchase order through their system and then we'll ship it out three or four days later. Now, so you're, you're carrying this in Sherwin-Williams stores, PPG stores. Are you, are you worried at some point that they're going to come up with their own competitive product and just roll with it? Um, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, is it a worry? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's in the back of my mind. It doesn't keep me up at night. Yeah. It took us a year and a half to develop this formula, and we are still doing product development. So, I mean, I had a call with my, my lead chemist last week, and they came up with a couple ideas on how to improve the, improve the product. I came up with a couple ideas, and I've talked to a couple other people in the industry that work for some of the large raw material suppliers like Dow DuPont, BASF. They have a couple ideas. So we'll be in the lab the next two or three weeks creating three, four, five new formulations. And we're going to have to go back to 
the acoustical lab that we are that we do our testing with and have each of those formulations tested and then two or three months from now we'll have possibly even a better product or perhaps the product we have right now is the best product you know and the three or four new formulations are not quite as good as the one we have so i'm going to continue investing in product development and making sure that we are trying to stay ahead of any of our potential competitors but at the end of the day there's other smart people out there that could come up with something. It's just impossible to know if that will ever happen or not, or if they'll just continue to partner with us and be our distribution partners. And then potentially someday, I guess we could get acquired. You never know what's going to happen somewhere down the road. But yeah, it's, it's always in my mind. <laughs> Perfect. So you, you have this podcast project I, I found, and you were doing it for, I think you, you mentioned two years. And I think you interviewed over 200 people. What'd you learn? <laughs> so I call that my online MBA program <laughs> because I think I started it in 2012. I did it for about a year and a half. And then I took a couple of years off and then got back into it for another year and a half. So altogether, I have interviewed about 225 people over a three-year period spread out over five or six years. And I mean, I've, I've learned a lot. I really did learn as much from those people as I probably could have learned in an MBA program or maybe doing an internship somewhere. I mean, I guess getting hands-on experience is always a little bit different than hearing some other founder talk about their problems. But, you know, I mean, the two questions I'd always ask is, what are you the most proud of? And what advice, maybe three questions, what are you the most proud of? What were two or three of the biggest mistakes that you made that you would go back and do over again? And then three, what advice would you have for some other entrepreneur starting a business? So, I mean, I think those three questions give you a lot of insight into the ups and downs that any founder or entrepreneur is going to go through in their journey. And I think especially on the mistakes, I think you can learn a lot from other people's mistakes, other founders' mistakes, whether it's hiring, raising capital, working with attorneys. There's a million things that go into business. And obviously, trying to build a successful company is not easy and takes a long time. And I mean, now granted, even though they all told me, make sure you have more capital than you need, make sure you hire the right people, build the right culture, all of that stuff, I still made those mistakes. Mm. You know, I mean, I think someone can tell you what to do, but sometimes you just have to do it yourself and you have to learn it, learn for yourself. And if you're going to make mistakes, I mean, luckily those mistakes were in the beginning. They were, you know, I made some very minor mistakes and I was able to correct them quickly. So they certainly didn't, they didn't hamper the, the growth of the company. But sometimes you can hire the wrong person early on and that person can really destroy the company. Or you can not raise enough money and run out of capital and bankrupt the company. Luckily, those things didn't happen. But I've talked to many of the interviews that I hosted. Both of those things were, were common occurrences for these founders where they almost didn't make it. They were on the, the brink of going out of business when... Maybe they closed a big deal or they got some investor to come in and rescue the day. So I mean, I would say those, those are the two most important things I learned is always have enough money and hire the right people. Hire slow and fire fast. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's the thing that everyone says in startup land. And I don't think you really appreciate it until you actually have to go through it yourself. Makes a lot of sense. Now, you're a busy guy. You said you travel a lot. What are your top uh, three habits or routines that... Uh, that keep you on track? Wow. 
yeah, I mean, so just for the record, my traveling is always for business. It's not for fun. (laughs) (laughs) None of this is like, I'm not going and hanging out in Miami or anything. I mean, it's all, it's all for business. Typically I'm traveling at least once, sometimes twice a week into different cities to meet with customers, meet with our dealer partners, and then also do these, what we call mock-ups, which is essentially like a field test where we're going to a property that has a problem. They're looking for a solution. And we'll typically spray product on both sides of the wall, the shared wall between the hotel room or the apartment unit, and then do sound testing before and after, write up a report, give them all the data so that they, they can make an informed decision. So that's typically those three things what we're traveling. And then also in meeting with investors. The things that keep me on track, I mean, I, I try to get enough sleep. I don't think I ever do. So I consume a lot of caffeine to get me through the day. But I would say the gym is absolutely the probably the one thing that keeps me on track the most. I'm usually up at about 7 or 7.30 in the morning, go to the gym for about an hour and a half, two hours every morning, seven days a week, and work out pretty hard. And that just puts me in the right mood for the rest of the day, gets my energy levels up. And I'm not the kind of guy, I don't like working out at night when I'm tired, I've had a long day, and I just want to kind of relax, eat dinner and go to bed. So the morning, those being up early in the morning, getting productive, getting the energy blood pumping. That's important for me. Other than that, I mean, I'm not really sure. I don't really have a lot of hobbies and and interests. Single guy, no kids, no mortgage, no car. Just me, my suitcase, and my laptop going everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Now, you talked about going in and and doing mock-ups. And I guess earlier you said, you know, working with contractors and training. What, What is your training program look like? I know that that must be a big sort of aspect, right? Trying to get the right contractors to help you? Yep, definitely. Right. So the way that we describe it is this product has to be applied by a certified contractor. So we're going after what's called the pro market rather than the DIY or the consumer market. So this product has to be applied by a high pressure airless sprayer, typically two and a half to three horsepower, which is normally a Five or six thousand dollar sprayer, whether it's Graco or Titan. So we're talking some heavy duty spray equipment that you typically can't rent anywhere. So you have to own it. And even your residential contractors typically don't own that sort of equipment because it's just more than they ever need. So really, it's just your commercial contractors that have that equipment, which works out well for us because those are the guys that are doing the hotel jobs, the apartment jobs, the condo jobs, etc. New construction, renovations, turnovers. So that's really, those are the guys that we try to focus on. So the way that we do these mock-ups, like I said, we go into the city, each city, the property, the, we do a sample room or actually it's a sample wall, both sides. I would say 10% of the time I'm shipping my own sprayer to the property and doing it myself. Mm. If I can't find a contractor in the city to do it for me, sometimes I have to hire a contractor in a city and pay them something just to essentially cover their expenses for the day or day and a half of the mock-up. And other times I can convince them saying, listen, we're a growing company. We're approved by PPG and Sherwin. We're doing business development all over the country. We're talking to all these hotel groups and potential customers. We need a contractor or two in this market where you guys are. So if you can give me a guy or two for a day and I can be there on site with them and train them hands-on to do this mock-up and spray this product correctly, you'll be one of our certified contractors for this city, whether it's DC, Dallas, San Francisco. I mean, we have, we have certified contractors all over the country now. 
And then what we do for them is if that project comes to fruition, they'll be first in line to obviously bid on it. We can't promise it to them. We can't guarantee it. That's going to get us in trouble. But we can certainly make sure that they're part of the, the conversation when it comes to bid on, on the, paint, the paint item, I guess, in that project. I also print out a certificate for them. I sign it. I mail it to them so they can frame it and put it up in their office if they want. And then we also send them a gold seal with an embedded link in it. I think I guess it's an HTML file with an embedded link that takes them back to the SoundGuard product page website. But at least they can put that on their website to show that they're a certified contractor. And then if anyone on their website needs more information on SoundGuard, they can obviously click on the badge and it'll take them back to the website so that we can educate them. So that's essentially what we're doing right now. I think eventually what we're going to have to do, though, is since that's a very unscalable process, I don't want to have to keep flying around the country training contractors in person. We are in the process of putting together an online training program, which would be essentially like a 20 or 25 minute presentation and then some spraying videos, and then maybe even a little quiz at the end. And assuming that they get through all of that, then they could be a certified contractor for us. Okay, very cool. Now, is there anything that that I didn't ask you, but I should have? Let's see. No, I mean, you pretty much covered it. Uh, recently, we got accepted into the plug-and-play tech accelerator for materials startups, which is pretty cool because it's actually... So the way the plug and play works, it's not your traditional accelerator where it's like 13 weeks. You have to be there every day, 10 hours a day. This particular program is really all about getting connected to the right people. So getting connected to strategic partners, investors, mentors, logistics companies, which is obviously important for us. So this particular cohort, as they call it, is 16 startups all doing something innovative in the materials and material science space. And the corporate partners that are supporting this program are Dow DuPont, Sherwin-Williams, BASF, USG, Mohawk, some really, really incredible companies. So when I go back out to Silicon Valley in two weeks, I get to meet with all of those companies for 30 minutes and discuss potential partnerships, investments, licensing deals, all of that stuff. So I'm excited about that because it really puts me in front of the types of companies that we want to work with going forward. Nice. Very cool. Jonah, your information is very good. And I, I'm sure that we'll convince more people to uh, start up in this space and uh, build more critical mass to make it easier for uh, the best ideas to get through. I appreciate it. And if anyone has any questions or just wants to chat about the company or the product, you can reach me at Jonah at soundguard.io. Perfect. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.